BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. A lot going on. The hearings into hearings is not even the right word anymore. There's just circus that's going on with Brett Kavanaugh. I've got a lot of news about that. And then, of course, we've got this op-ed in the New York Times. And I wanted to share my opinions on that with you as well. But let me start with uh, Kavanaugh and abortion. And this story may not seem to have anything to do with Kavanaugh, but it, this is the very essence of it. Texas passed a law which has been championed by Ken Paxton, their attorney general, passed a law saying that if you are a woman and you have a miscarriage or you have a stillbirth or you have an ectopic pregnancy, this is where the egg and sperm meet and get fertilized, but they don't travel all the way down the fallopian tube into the uterus and implant, but instead they start growing inside the fallopian tube which can kill a woman. If you have any of those circumstances, or an abortion, if you have any of those circumstances, you must report yourself to the local police department if you fail to hold a burial ceremony and either bury or cremate the fetal tissue. Now, 
I'm not sure that the you must report yourself to the police department is part of this law, but there are penalties for not doing this, which means that the police department may report itself to you. But you get my point. In Texas, Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott and the guys, the men running Texas, very much want to make it law in Texas, and it is law in Texas right now, that if you have a miscarriage, you must have a funeral. I believe about one in four pregnancies ends in a miscarriage. I know very few women who have not had at least one miscarriage in their lives. And to have to compound the tragedy of that with the necessity to basically follow a state law and hold a funeral for a miscarriage, regardless of when the miscarriage happened, could be, you know, in the sixth week, right? Month and a half into it. To have to do this is bizarre. And this federal judge blocked that law, saying that it's an unnecessary and inappropriate intrusion into the rights of women and, you know, blah, blah. And part of the judge's rationale was that it basically this infringes on a woman's right to choose based on Roe v. Wade, because also if you have an abortion, you know, the Texas wants you to have to have a funeral, regardless of when the abortion happened. And Brett Kavanaugh has taken the position now that while Roe v. Wade may be settled law, it might be stare decisis, it might be established precedent, that doesn't mean that it can't be overturned. And in fact, he wrote it in, in a memo when he was in the Bush White House. And this is why it's so important that so much of this stuff comes out and it's not coming out. This was in 2003 when he was working for George W. Bush. And they were prepping, I believe it was uh, Patricia Owens. It was one of Bush's uh, Supreme Court nominees who wanted to go before the Judiciary Committee and say, uh, yeah, Roe v. Wade is settled law. And Brett Kavanaugh pushed back on that. He sent an email and he said, quote, I am not sure that all legal scholars refer to Roe as the settled law of the land at the Supreme Court level, since the court can always overrule its own precedent. And three justices on the court would do so right now. Scalia, Thomas, and I'm not sure who the third is that he's referring to, but here he is saying that this is, this is what we've got right now. So it's not settled law. We can overturn it. So we shouldn't even call it settled law. This is what Kavanaugh was saying. So if you want to live in a world or in a country where if you have a miscarriage, you must report yourself to the police or certify to the police that, yes, I actually had a funeral or a burial or a cremation for that little blob of bloody tissue. If you want to live in that kind of a country, then, hey, call your senators and tell them that Brett Kavanaugh is your man. Now, to the issue of this op-ed, this op-ed is amazing. This anonymous writer in the New York Times, and he's saying that the, you know, there's absolute chaos in the Trump White House. Trump himself is impetuous and, and bizarre, and these may not be the words in the op-ed. I'm, I'm not reading from it. I'm characterizing it. That he changes his mind, that he's making decisions that put the national security at risk. But don't worry, there's a small band of us who really like things like the tax cuts and the deregulation. I mean, this is clearly a Mike Pence Republican who is saying this. And in my opinion, it's, I believe it's probably Mike Pence's speechwriter who wrote this. Pence wants Trump out of there. Pence, Pence believes that God ordained him to be president. He has believed that since he was a teenager. He believed that when he was a right-wing talk show host climbing the political ladder in Indiana. He believed that when he represented Indiana in the House of Representatives. He believed that when he was governor of Indiana. He believes that now as vice president. God wants him to be president. And that's why I think that it's probably Mike Pence's speechwriter, because Mike Pence loves using this word lodestar, and it appears in the op-ed. And his speechwriter would know that. Or it's somebody trying to, you know, throw shade on Pence to suggest to Trump, hey, maybe it's Pence. I doubt Pence himself would write it, though, because Mike Pence is really good at not having his fingerprints on the dirty tricks that he does. By the way, the whole you must have a funeral for your fetus law that's being, that was just struck down in Texas, Mike Pence proposed a similar law in Indiana, just so you know, who, you know how crazy this guy is. But my thoughts on this op-ed, and I would love to hear yours, but this is my opinion. A coup has happened. There is an unelected group of people inside the White House, inside this administration, who have taken policymaking and administration out of the hands 
of the guy that was elected by the people, Donald Trump, and put it in their own hands. That is the definition of a coup d'etat. I think that it is highly unconstitutional. I think it's highly illegal what this man or woman is confessing to. And I think it's wrong. If they really believe that Donald Trump is a menace to the country, such a menace that they have to, you know, they, he talks about uh, General Mattis and John Kelly taking papers off his desk so that he can't see them or sign them. If they really believe that it's that bad, they need to sit down with Mike Pence and Paul Ryan and invoke the 25th Amendment. It's that simple. There is a constitutional process for dealing with a president who does not have the capacity to execute the obligations of his office. There is a clear constitutional process. It was put into place in 1967, in large part in response to the death of John Kennedy, but also in small part in response to back in 19, whatever the year was, 1780, whatever the year when Woodrow Wilson had his stroke and one of his assistants stepped in and said, I'm in charge here. Well, Al Haig did the same thing when Reagan was shot. And it was an attempt to clarify exactly what the process is if the president is incapacitated, whether he's been shot, whether he's had a stroke, whether he's dead, or in the case of Donald Trump, whether he's crazy, incompetent, or dangerous, or possibly even an agent of a foreign government. If that is the case, there is a, a constitutional mechanism to remove the president. And in my opinion, instead of bragging to the New York Times that we've got this under control, we're getting our tax cuts, everything's good, we're cutting environmental regulations so the billionaires are going to get richer, everything's good. Yeah, some people may die from mercury poisoning and stuff, but don't worry about it, lead poisoning, it's not a big deal. Everything's good, we've got this under control, we're going to restrain the worst impulses of this man. I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that it's legal, that it's appropriate, that it's reasonable. If the American people elect somebody, now I can make the argument that the American people didn't elect Donald Trump, that he's there in part because of interference by Russia, he's there in part because of voter suppression by the Republican Party, that if people who wanted to vote had been allowed to vote, and I'm talking legally registered voters, had been allowed to vote, citizens of the United States, that Donald Trump would not be president. You've got Hillary Clinton who got three million more votes than Donald Trump. You know, I could build that argument all day long, but that's a completely separate thing. The fact of the matter is that we now have a group of people inside the White House or inside the administration being represented by this, quote, senior administration official, end quote, saying, don't worry, we've taken over the government. Well, that scares the hell out of me. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. He should be running the country as he sees fit. And if you and I think that it's wrong, we should vote his party out of office on November 6th. And if people in his cabinet, if his vice president, if people in Congress actually believe the things that they're constantly whispering to reporters, that the guy is nuts, that he's a narcissist, that he is a psychopath or a sociopath, if they believe that, invoke the damn 25th Amendment and get him out and make Mike Pence president. So who do you think wrote the memo? And what's your opinion of it? Do you think this is a great patriot? Or are we right now in the United States for arguably the first time in our history living through a coup d'etat? This is the Tom Hartman Program. All righty, let's pick up some phone calls here and see what you all think about this thing. Boy, what a day. It's just... <laughs> This is incredible. So is the author of the New York Times op-ed a patriot or a traitor who is part of a coup? I am taking the latter position that if when Barack Obama was president of the United States, if a small group of people inside the White House had published an op-ed in the New York Times saying Obama has gone off the rails, he is cutting a deal with the communist dictator of Cuba, Fidel Castro, he's cutting a deal with him to normalize relationships with Cuba. Unheard of. And he's cutting a deal with the theocratic dictators of Iran, the mullahs, to normalize relationships with Iran. We cannot allow this. This is beyond the pale. This is not what Americans want, they would say. And therefore, we are sabotaging his efforts. Can you imagine how we would react? I mean, this is not the time for the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thinking. This is the time for a clear-headed perspective on this, you know, knowing exactly what's going on. 
Tyrone in New York City. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, how's it going, Tom? Good. Yeah, you said everything that I'm thinking. You said everything that I was thinking about. I, I think I listened to you too much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Because when you tell, when you, this, this is a Republican coup. Not going to say that it's a Democratic coup because they already stated that they are part of the Republican, this, this whole Republican, Republican mantra, and they have already stated that, that this is what they're doing to keep our country safe. Right, the they and being we, this op-ed author and his buddies. Yes. And I say his, we don't know, but probably. Yes, and because we continue to ignore the fact that this has been going on since back Nixon time, this cancer of anti-American sentiments that's been running through the Republican Party and only has been getting stronger. Because that's, they just disregard the rule of law in this country. That's and a really important point, Tyrone, if I may. Essentially, what these guys are saying is we're Republicans. We don't respect the rule of law. We don't respect elections. We never have. You know, we helped Nixon steal an election by sabotaging the Vietnam talks. We helped Reagan steal an election by sabotaging Carter's efforts to get the hostages back. We don't, you know, so yeah, of course, we'll take over the White House and run it to the benefit of the billionaires. No problem. We like tax cuts and deregulation which basically they said in the op-ed. Tyrone, you nailed it. Thanks so much for the call. We'll be back with more of your calls, my thoughts, and the news of the day. And we'll pick up a few pieces of the hearings, too, as we continue through the day. Listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order Using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Okay, so you've got my position on this. this, um, I'm lacking a word. What do you call somebody who plots and executes a coup? I mean, traditionally, you've called that person a traitor. And apparently Melania Trump has just come out and called this person a traitor who wrote this op-ed in the New York Times and, you know, has some very strong language. And she said accusations can lead to severe consequences. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at what happened in Turkey. I mean, in fact, it raises the question, is Trump going to do what Erdogan did? In Turkey, when a group of people plotted a coup against Erdogan, he was out of the country and they took over the government while he was out of the country. He came back and he put 35,000 people in prison and executed a whole bunch of them. And I swear, it's got to be running through Donald Trump's mind right now. Anyhow, a lot on the table. Let's pick up some of your calls. Lisa in Seattle. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind? 
Oh, hi, Tom. I agree with you about the New York Times article. I think it's a coup. But I have a theory. I think that with Kavanaugh being so close to being placed, I think this was always in the works. I think they know they have the Mad King in place. And, you know, the right wing, extreme right wing, and the religious people have wanted control of that Supreme Court. That was all they really wanted. Yeah. I think because he's so close to being placed, now they're starting their attack on Donald. Well, and this raises another question. Was this op-ed placed on the day that it was placed in order to push the Kavanaugh news off the front page so that there wouldn't be pressure on the Senate not to confirm him? Good point. Yep. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. That's a little more three-dimensional chess than I'm willing to get into, but good point, Lisa. They've been playing us so much. I mean, they do distractions, through all kinds of things. You know, the the public has been being led for a long time. I really think this has to do with they're going to get their wish. They're going to get their two Supreme Court justices. They're going to tilt that court to the right, and that's all they really wanted. Yeah, I think you may well be right. Lisa, thank you for the call. Dick Durbin is speaking right now. Let's just check in and see if he's saying something really consequential or not. You descended from a decision upholding the Affordable Care Act and made a breathtaking claim of presidential power, which has been repeated over and over again. And you said, under the Constitution, the president may decline to enforce a statute that regulates private individuals when the president deems the statute unconstitutional, even if a court has held or would hold the statute constitutional. Your words. Of course, the unitary executive theory was the basis for President Bush's December 30th, 2005 signing statement claiming the authority to override the McCain torture amendment. Yesterday, I asked you what comments you made on the signing statement as President Bush's staff secretary. Senator Feinstein asked a similar question this morning. What you told me was, I can't recall what I said. I do recall there was a good deal of internal debate about that signing statement, as you can imagine. I do remember it would be controversial internally. It's hard to imagine you can't remember that controversial issue. Given our concerns about your views on executive power, it's important for you at this moment, please, to clarify for us the power of the presidency in this age of Donald Trump. Thank you for your comments. We have okay, now. I'm going to take the show back historically. Here. Like, Kavanaugh is, is essentially it? saying, yeah, yeah, I said the president has the authority to override the courts, but, you know, which, by the way, is what Andrew Jackson did twice, right, with the Trail of Tears and with the Second National Bank. Uh, and it's what Abraham Lincoln did with Dred Scott. They all, in three cases, the Supreme Court was ignored by presidents of the United States. And Kavanaugh says, hey, that's just fine. Dick Durbin confronts him about it, and Kavanaugh tries to say, well, you know, that wasn't the actual case that we were talking about. It wasn't the special counsel law. No, the principle is the principle. Come on. Michael in Fairfax, Virginia. Hey, Michael, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Hey, Tom. Um, man, I, this is like an amazing thing. I, we agree with each other. <laughs> um, I listen to you almost every day, and I... And, I and you're a conservative? I agree with anything. I am. Um, but I'm not, a, you know, crazy about it or anything. I don't want to yell at you or any of that kind of stuff. But, um, no, we completely agree. Like, this is a huge thing. I was telling my wife last night, I said, you know, I didn't like Obama at all. But, man, it would have bothered me to my core to find out that there was somebody in his administration trying to sort of thwart his efforts to do, you know, the things that I didn't particularly agree with. But... Duly elected president, man, it's a it's a very bad path to go down. Yes, um, and, and this, I'm this glad is that, that and, you recognize that. Yeah, and this is not a partisan issue. I mean, I, this, right. this is the thing that horrified me yesterday, watching all these commentators on television going, "Oh, yeah, great, the republic is safe now." Um, no, no, <laughs> you know, it's actually more in peril than it has been. Absolutely. Wait until Elizabeth Warren is president, and a bunch of people in her administration say, "Oh, we're not going to allow her to have socialized medicine." Absolutely. And then what does that do for, like, the vetting process of hiring people and all these things? It just it turns yes. things so on its head. Yes. It's very, this, very dangerous. This is a crime against our republic. It really it is. It is absolutely it's, a crime um, against our republic. One more thing I wanted to, to bring up with you. You were talking about the, um, like, affirmative action and all, those, and all these things. I have a unique situation. Um, so my, my daughter is half black. My wife is black. And her cousin who lives down in North Carolina, is half Asian and half white. So we're a mixed family, as it were. Um, but do you know that when they take the SATs, 
that my daughter will get automatically get 450 points more than her cousin will? I did not because know that, and I'm not sure I believe docked. that. Her, her cousin will get docked 100 and some points, I think 140 points, and my daughter will get awarded 310 points just for being black. Yeah. I think that, you know, this is the, 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 the rationale for this, Michael. Michael, I can't, I can't verify the numbers that you're stating, but I know that, I mean, this is the essence of some of the affirmative action stuff. And I, I've been, I, I confess, I've become addicted to the New York Times mini crossword puzzles. And I've been, you know, in the afternoon just, you know, solving the five or six of them a day just for fun. The manager They're, writes those, actually. Yeah, okay. And, and um, one of the things that really has become clear to me is that there are so many cultural references in those things that if I was not part of, quote, mainstream culture, which is basically white culture in America, I wouldn't know the answers to. And uh, on the other hand, you know, if, if, the, if the questions had been questions that were something that was, you know, if, if I lived in an inner city or if I grew up black, I would more likely know the answers to different questions than those. I mean, there, there is a cultural bias in our testing system. And oh, so we have been attempting why, why do they to resolve that. Asian that? kids are automatically going to do so much better. I would say by and large because the, the discrimination against Asian kids. question on the SATs is probably more interesting. The 1880s was the last time that you had the you know, government aggressively discriminating against Asians. Now, I realize that, that Asians in many parts of the country are discriminated against, and it's a terrible thing. But, but not essentially ghettoized, not segregated the way that African Americans have been. And, and, and as a result of that, you've got tests that still bear uh, what, what I think you could legitimately call substantial uh, racial bias. And, and, you know, something should be done about that and something appropriate should be done about that. So, uh, M Michael, I, you know, I get it that you don't agree with that. You're making the argument basically, and thank you for the call. You're making the argument basically that Kavanaugh was making in, in this exchange that Cory Booker just publicized, which is everything should be race neutral. Well, once everybody is equal, fine. But everybody is not equal. They're not equal in educational opportunity, equal in the schools that they're getting. We're not all equal. Tom Hartman here with you. Our program available from uh, Sirius XM to commercial and non-commercial stations, our Pacifica affiliates. Uh, we're live on YouTube. We're live on Facebook. We're live on Patreon. We're on Free Speech TV, on Dish Network, Direct TV, Sling TV, uh, Roku. Uh, we're also on TuneIn. And in fact, if you got one of those little Alexa boxes, uh, you can say Alexa, play Tom Hartman. While we're live, it'll bring the show up. And there are free podcasts over at Apple and, of course, regular podcasts available on our website, TomHartman.com. Just an FYI. Joe Connison writing in the National Memo, how Trump will rig his own case. This is the elephant in the room that is only rarely mentioned in these hearings. And when it is mentioned, it's mentioned in a tangential or peripheral way because the Democratic senators who bring this up are trying to engage in decorum. When Cory Booker said, you know, I'm going to release these papers anyway. And then every other Democrat on the committee said, me too, or I'm with Cory, as did Chuck Schumer, who's not even on the committee. But Cory Booker came out and he said this unilaterally, all by himself. He said, there's this email that Brett Kavanaugh is part of that's talking about racial profiling. And this was in the context of 9-11 and security and TSA and all that kind of stuff. He said, there's an email where he's talking about racial profiling and, and you are blocking it, Mr. Grassley, from being part of the record so that I can't even ask Kavanaugh a question about it. And I'm going to release it to the press. And you can find it all over, you know, all over this morning. And, uh, you know, Kavanaugh is going off on his high-sounding, so high oh, we want to reach a time when, you know, there's no consideration of race. Which means no more affirmative action, no more anti-discrimination laws. I mean, this is the direction that these guys have been, have been proudly proclaiming that they want to go since the night, ever since Brown v. Board. There was Brown v. Board, and then there was Brown v. Board 2, you know, in 54 and 56. And Brown v. Board 2 actually ordered forced integration, forced busing. 
And that was when the Republicans began this mantra. Well, actually, it was a lot of Southern Democrats at that point in time as well. It was in both parties. The Democrats repudiated it in 1965, well, largely repudiated that part of it with the election of John Kennedy in 1960. But the, the Democrats said, no, I mean, we've got centuries, 400 years of uh, not just, you know, racial preferences and, and racial discrimination, but of actual genocide and slavery based on race, Native Americans and African Americans, among others. But principally those two groups, we, we have this long history of this, and it's going to take a little while recognizing race to clean up from this. And in this email exchange where they were discussing this broad concept of whether basically TSA agents should be able to pull people out of line because they look Middle Eastern. And Kavanaugh, you know, part of the discussion in the email thread was, well, you know, these people are really slick. These Saudi terrorists, the majority of the 9-11 terrorists were Saudis, of course. He was getting back on his hobby horse of, well, we need to get to the point in time where there's no consideration of race. And of course, that's the giant, that's the big picture that Cory Booker was objecting to. The African-American senator from New Jersey saying, you know, wait a minute, is this really your thinking? Do you think that, that we don't need anti-discrimination laws? I mean, that was the essence of the Supreme Court in, uh, in the case where they gutted the, the Voting Rights Act. So Shelby County, that case, I believe. In any case, that was the essence of the, of, of the debate, was, ah, everything's fine now. Yes, the Senate voted 98 to nothing to renew the Voting Rights Act unanimously or nearly unanimously. I think there were a couple of uh, dead members at the time or missing members, whatever. But it doesn't matter what the elected representatives of the people chose. What matters is what we, the 10 justices or nine justices on the Supreme Court, excuse me, uh, I have to say, I'm getting ahead of myself here because I'm thinking that the next Democratic president needs to add one or two. But that's a whole other conversation for another time. So what Joe Connison is saying is that in addition to Kavanaugh's extreme views on abortion, on labor, I'm, this is, I'm reading from his piece actually, uh, Kavanaugh's established record of extreme views on abortion, labor, environmental protection, gun control, civil liberties, and voting rights. We have this whole other thing, which is what Kavanaugh basically leaked into the press and lobbied to get into the press so that Donald Trump would see it, so that Donald Trump would add him to the list of potential nominees that the Federalist Society had come up with, knowing Brett Kavanaugh, he's, he's a very smart man, and apparently a very power-hungry man, willing to do pretty much anything. And apparently, by the way, a man who has a problem with money. Last year, he had $200,000 in credit card debts, according to his financial disclosure forms. This year, zero. How do you run up $200,000 in credit card debt? Number one, there are some who are concerned that he may have a gambling problem, and he might have been laundering his gambling money with baseball tickets, because he was buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of baseball tickets. Or maybe it's something else. And I would love to see a member of the Senate ask him, you know, how, how, who paid off your credit cards? Was it the Koch brothers? Was it Donald Trump? Who cleaned you up so that you could come into this hearing? And what kind of problem do you have that puts you $200,000 in debt to begin with? These are issues that speak to his character. And the reason why I just went into that digression is because I was talking about his character, him trying to get himself on the Supreme Court by, by pushing out into the news through surrogates, the fact that he believes that a sitting president cannot be even questioned if there's evidence that that sitting president has committed a crime, a felony. Because the sitting president is so busy with such important work as I saw in the Bush administration. George Bush was so busy, all because of 9-11. My rebuttal to that would be Donald Trump has spent one out of every three days since he has been president on one of his own golf courses playing golf. Are you really telling me this guy is too busy to do a deposition? This guy is too busy to answer questions about crimes he might have committed? Seriously? That's what you're trying to tell me, Brett Kavanaugh? But the point of Joe Connison's piece, and I think it's a really good point, I, you know, it's a point that I've been making ever since I first noticed 
that Kavanaugh was trying to get him, his name in the press. A few weeks later, Trump put him on the list of potential nominees that had been originally provided to him by uh, the Federalist Society, heavily funded by the Koch brothers, among others, by the way. That, you know, when I noticed that, that Kavanaugh was doing this and that then Trump added him to the list, I, you know, on the air, those of you who've been listening to the program for years, you, you've heard me say it. Trump's going to pick Kavanaugh. Why? He's trying to rig his own case. He's trying to pick his own judge. He wants to have somebody in the room with the other eight Supreme Court justices arguing that they should not rule that he has to submit to questioning. Trump wants somebody in the room with the Supreme Court justices who will overturn the Nixon precedent. In the case of Nixon, the Supreme Court said yes. Well, and there's also the Paula Jones versus uh, Bill Clinton precedent. But in U.S. v. Nixon, the Supreme Court said the president is not above the law. If a congressional committee or a court orders subpoenas, the White House tapes, he has to provide them. And Nixon, to his credit, provided them. Which, by the way, is the opposite of what's happening right now in the Kavanaugh hearings, where only 7% of Brett Kavanaugh's papers and documents have been revealed, not just to you and me, the American people, but to the Democratic members of the committee. The Republicans are holding these things and refusing to let the Democrats see them. Hundreds of thousands of documents. This is how desperate Donald Trump is to get Kavanaugh on the bench. The right-wing billionaires want Kavanaugh on the bench because he believes in this doctrine I talked about briefly yesterday, I talked about the Chevron deference, and I talked about mens rea, state of mind. These are two doctrines that they want to see put into law, the, the Koch brothers and the other right-wing billionaires. Uh, in the case of the Chevron deference, it means that the EPA can no longer regulate things that are not specifically mentioned in legislation, which on its face sounds reasonable, but it's totally unreasonable. It's, as I said yesterday, it's like my sticking up a, a 7-Eleven. And then when I get arrested saying, yeah, you know, there's specific laws against robbing banks. There's specific laws against robbing pharmacies. There's no specific law against robbing a 7-Eleven, so you have to let me go. And this is the argument that Ann Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch's mother, made when she was Reagan's EPA administrator before she resigned in disgrace. She made this argument and went all the way to the Supreme Court in the case of Chevron versus versus National Resource Defense Council, the NRDC. And she said that because the legislation that created the EPA does not mention the word mercury, the EPA cannot regulate mercury, even though mercury is a known neurotoxin that is poisoning our children. It's in our water. It damages people. And she lost that case. The Supreme Court said no. The deference that you have to give is to the regulatory agency. Unless you can prove that they're doing something out of malice or out of incompetence, you have to defer to their judgment. And the mens rea, that's the thing where the right-wing billionaires, the, the CEOs of corporate America want it. And by the way, mens rea was discussed this morning. I keep telling you, look out for this stuff, right? Be, be, and sure enough, they brought up mens rea this morning. And that's the doctrine that if a CEO of a company, you know, uh, the, the, the guy running General Motors back in the day, or Ford back in the day, says, oh, yeah, you could put that gas tank in the back. No problem. Or put the side saddle gas tanks, General Motors and the, the Chevy's, Chevy trucks, put the side saddle gas tanks on there. It'll save us $5 a car. We'll make an extra $20 million this year without having the intention of turning those cars into fireballs, into, into torches and killing many, many people, which happened, by the way. The mens rea argument says if he didn't intend for those people to die, you can't prosecute. Thomas Newberger has just published a piece over a common dreams that I find absolutely fascinating and I want to bring it to your attention. He suggests that the Democrats in the Senate, and this would require 100 percent unanimity among the Democrats. So they would have to get Joe Manchin on board. They would have to get Heidi Heitkamp on board. They would have to get Claire McCaskill on board, which is something I'm skeptical of, but these are urgent times, as, as the saying goes. Uh, what he's suggesting is that the Democrats should say to the Republicans, Chuck Schumer should say to Mitch McConnell, if you guys will not postpone this nomination until the next legislative session, January of 2019, which is a mere, what, five months away? If I'm doing my math right, something like that, four or five months away. If you will not postpone this, these hearings and this vote 
on this nominee until after the election, we are going to leave town. We will leave one senator in the Capitol who every single time the Republicans call for unanimous consent will deny it. The Republicans can still get done everything they want because they have, you know, they got 50 votes, uh, 51 votes. Now, John Kyle has been, uh, or yeah, John Kyle has been sworn in for, for, uh, for John McCain's seat. The Republicans can do whatever they're going to do, but they're going to do it without our complicity, without our cooperation, without us going along. We are going to make a loud public statement. This is not normal. This is not right. This guy Kavanaugh, according to Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains, uh, which was written several years ago, she pointed out Brett Kavanaugh was handpicked by the Koch brothers or by their network as one of the guys who's going to do what the billionaire class wants. And we're not having it. So let's see where it goes. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Margie in Houston, Texas. Hey, Margie, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi, Tom. I've been listening to the uh, proceedings, and I'm wondering... Will Kavanaugh go through no matter what because the Republicans have the numbers or are the Democrats just um, stalling for Mueller, for Mueller's investigation? The, the number one thing that could prevent this, yeah. setting aside any Democrats, you know, flipping, um, which is a possibility. But the number one thing is if his extreme views on abortion are made so clear that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, the senators from Maine and Alaska, the Republican senators, can no longer pretend that his assurance that Roe v. Wade is settled law, which, of course, is obvious to everybody, um, are, is of consequence. I mean, to say when you're when you're not on the Supreme Court, to say something is settled law, therefore can't rule against it. Well, of course. But once you're on the Supreme Court, the, you know, the Supreme Court routinely overturns settled law. In fact, right. Roe v. Wade was overturning settled law. So, yeah, uh, you know, that's what it's going to take. Is it going to take Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins both to say no? Awesome. And if they if, so if and, and, and then if they both say no and Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp and Claire McCaskill don't say yes, then you've got it. So there is I mean, you know, I, I get all the pundits on TV are going, oh, this is a done deal. I don't think it's a done deal. And if it is a done deal, I think that the Democrats should exact a, uh, a punishment for it, essentially. I agree with Thomas Newberger, um, who I believe used to write under the name Gaius Publius, 
that uh, the Democrats should just, you know, take a stand here, make, a, make an issue out of this. Uh, thank you for the call. Rocco, uh, listening to Progressive Voices in Rosendale, New York. Hey, Rocco, what's up? Well, I kind of noticed something when you were talking about a coup. Um, there was a coup that was uh, started in, in the 30s. Um, the businessman business had failed the coup um, against FDR right after he put through his, uh, his plan, Social Security and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. So uh, this has been going on for quite some time. Um, and then, and then it got, you know, brought back to the fore when when Reagan busted unions, and now we have this. Can't well, say it wasn't coming. Yeah, there there have been attempts. I mean, Smedley Butler called that thing out. There were a bunch of industrialists. It looks like you know Rockefeller and Mellon and a few others uh, came to uh, Smedley Butler, who was at that point in time sort of the the general patent, the John McCain of America. He was the 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 most uh, decorated war hero in American history. Uh, he was a Marine general. Uh, at that time, he was retired, uh, but he still held that in very, very high esteem, uh, made a minor living traveling around the country, speaking to veterans groups, and uh, was a celebrity. And uh, they came to Smedley Butler and they said, we've got this group, and I'm, f I'm forgetting the name of the group. It was, it was like a veterans organization that had about a half million members that was extremely right wing. And they said, we will march on Washington, D.C., we will take the White House, we will imprison the president and vice president, and we will install an acting president in their place if you will lead the troops. And Smedley, Smedley, Butler, call, Smedley Butler called them out, and Congress began to investigate this. Democrats in Congress were outraged, and FDR stopped the investigation because he did not want anybody to think that that was even possible. He was very concerned about it getting out. So that was an attempted coup that didn't didn't work. And in, in the Reagan administration, you, know, you had, you had uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, uh, General, what's his name, saying, I'm in charge here? Yeah. Yeah, but he, yeah, but he was not actually in charge. I mean, I don't know of any time in history when there has actually been a coup. And we have one right now. This guy's bragging about it in the New York Times. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think this is this is a big danger. This is a huge red flag. Rago, thanks thanks for the call. Sandy, watching us on Free Speech TV in Newcastle, Wyoming. Hey, Sandy, what's on your mind? I've been watching the confirmation hearings on Kavanaugh. Uh huh. And quite a number of the senators have brought up the fact that there is no precedent for what is happening. That's correct. What they are doing is trying to install a non-judicial precedent at the highest level. I agree. They've been, you know, this is how the courts are manipulated, is through non-judicial precedents, and nobody seems to want to talk about it. I haven't heard anyone. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I mean, this is the second breaking of precedent that Mitch McConnell has overseen now, and Chuck Grassley is, is conspiring with him in this. The first was denying Merrick Garland even meetings and hearings. And the second now is denying 93 percent, denying to give to the Democrats 93 percent of the record of Brett Kavanaugh's career as a judge and as a lawyer. Also, did you notice that Grassley calls you the Democrat Party? I heard that this morning. My head exploded. I, I was like, oh, my God. You know, Grassley yeah. is doing that from the podium. I, I was amazed that one of the Democrats didn't call him out and say, Senator, there is no such thing as a Democrat Party. It does not exist. It was Joe McCarthy's slur. He encouraged Republicans to use it and, and always emphasized the word rat. But when Thomas Jefferson named this party, he called it the Democratic Republican Party. And in the 19, in the 1820s, when they dropped the word Republican, they renamed it the Democratic Party. And it has been the Democratic Party ever since, ever since roughly 1800. Well, there needs to be more focus on uh the non-judicial precedents, because that's how all of the courts are being manipulated. Yeah, from I, I absolutely agree. Top. Yep, I absolutely agree. Well said. Thank you very much, Sandy, for the call. Uh, Jonathan uh, in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, Tom. <clears throat> Tom, I, um, I know who wrote the letter. Who is that? John Miller. Who's John Miller? <clears throat> well, we don't know John Miller. No. Well, I know it's John Miller because John Miller is Donald Trump's alter ego. When he used to pretend. Oh, so you think Trump would, wrote the letter or had somebody write the letter and, and leaked it so that he could do this whole kabuki theater to distract us from Kavanaugh melting down? Well, look, I'm half joking, right? But when you think about the resistance, what you think about someone who's fighting resistance is someone who's selfless and self-effacing. This whole letter was highly egotistical 
<clears throat> and it was very concerned. The person who was writing the letter was mostly concerned with how they were being perceived. Right. And also, um, it, it's bizarre to think that, you know, the resistance gives a wink and a nod to the wealthy and the powerful with tax breaks and deregulation. And, you know, I mean, that's like... Right. It's a joke. It just, it just sounds so bizarre. So I, I go, I'm going with John Miller. That's very interesting. You know, I, I can't rebut that. You know, the Reichstag fire, there's, there's a considerable amount of evidence that the Nazis actually helped Mares van der Lubbe set the, the, the German parliament building on fire in 1933. And uh, if Trump or people close to Trump participated in writing this letter to be a Reichstag fire, essentially, to be a, an inciting incident that Trump could use to begin a massive purge of government and maybe even to declare martial law, well, if, if, you're, if, you're really, if you're really trying to protect people, why would you want to uh, uncover your, your identity? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Jonathan, thank you for the call. Boy, food for thought. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. Alan Ratner's new book on the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, former uh, congressman from Ohio, Bob Nay. Bob, welcome back. Hi, Tom. Thank you. So uh, what's at the top of your hit parade of the news of the day? Well, I'll get to the op-ed in a second, but I did want to mention North Korea because we hear a lot of controversy back and forth of what's going on. And the North Korean president, Kim Jong-un, uh, has again reaffirmed about the denuclearization, highest levels north and south are meeting. So I, th I think that in itself continues on. But I don't know if you saw the statement. Uh, it kind of makes me chuckle because there was a statement. And this is uh, Chung Yui-yong, a special envoy from South Korea, who told reporters that Kim Jong-un stressed, quote, He's never talked negative about President Trump to his staff or anyone else. He wanted to make that clear. Oh, really? What about on Twitter when he called him a dotard? Well, yeah. So, but um, I just thought it was fascinating that all of a sudden, like, hey, by the way, you know, everybody else in the world is saying something. We aren't. So I just thought that was a quite fascinating uh, message, I think, probably to President Trump. Trump and dictators uh, seem to get along really well. Something's working. Yeah, I so I saw this, this issue. On this uh, letter to the editor of the New York Times, I just had a yep. caller who suggested that uh, Trump or somebody close to Trump may have actually placed this letter as an excuse to bring about a purge of, quote, disloyal elements within the White House, a purge that might be like the Night of the Long Knives. I mean, you know, only instead of killing people, imprisoning people. But uh, the purge is the next step in, in, a, in a takeover of a government. Uh, that seems a little extreme, a little paranoid for me. But I am of the opinion that this, this person has declared a coup. And I was horrified yesterday to see all these commentators on the television networks going, oh, well, thank God the republic is safe. You know, they're restraining his worst impulses. Can you imagine if they hadn't been there, how bad things would be? And I'm like, wait a minute, what happened? What would, how would, what would those same people have said if during the Obama administration somebody had come out and said, we're staging a coup. We're, we're, we're the loyal resistance inside the Obama administration, and we're going to prevent him from doing that socialized medicine Obamacare thing. Or if Elizabeth Warren gets elected and they, and they come out and say, we're taking over the executive branch. We're preventing President Warren from doing socialized medicine. We would be aghast. I mean, this is, this is a crime. Back to you, Bob. Oh, yes. I mean, but look, I'm not a, uh, you know me, I am not a conspiracy theorist, but I also have been in the government long enough to know there are some conspiracies. We can go back in history, the King David Hotel bombing, okay? I mean, we can just go back sure. where people did things for different motives to achieve what they wanted for support. Yeah, that was where right? Menachem and Begin blew up the hotel to kick off basically the war that produced Israel. Right. Right, and of course it was that uh, they were disguised as Arabs and made a, had an Arab make a phone call. It was going to be bombed, and yep. and so you know throughout history things have happened. Well, and this uh, is what it, this is what the Nazis did with the Reichstag in 1933. They burned down their own parliament building uh, in order correct. to get Hitler in as chancellor. Correct, and uh, it's interesting about the caller because I, I, there's something that bothered me with this entire thing uh, all morning long since 4:30 when I got up to compile the news. And here's what, what bothered me. First of all, I read it over. There's a couple of things. It looks to me, too, like somebody that is really, really loves free trade 
was was behind part of this, it looks like it, uh, because it, it's mentioned. Also, there is absolutely no way the vice president wrote this. They threw in a, a term he uses. Lodestar, uh, yeah. Right. In order to make it look like it, it, he wrote it. He's not that dumb to you know to put that in there. Right. Now somebody at a level below him could have. Number number two, I I don't think this was the janitor trying to call himself the high level White House person. Somebody at a higher level did do this. Here's what bugs me about this, and I've got to yield towards the caller when it comes to this particular maybe conspiracy. Something bothers me. If you read this letter, the person is, like, trying to save America. Uh, the person's all willing to do this. And, yeah, it's timing. I think he might have talked to Bob Woodward, but it's, it's not, you know, the timing of it was not just to promote a book. I, I, I don't believe that. Here's the problem. If I'm in the White House and I'm this person, and I really, really believe in my heart, which you read in that letter, that the you know, president's okay in some things, but we've got to stop him. My, this is my job. I'm going to save America. Why on earth would I not keep on the down low in the White House right. and achieve my objective, which is what I want to do? Why would I dare do an opt-ed? I have to lean towards the caller. I am thinking this was done, and now they're saying call the New York Times. I think this was done with, with the knowledge of the White House. Now, who, president or whatever, I don't know. I've got to yield to that because since this morning it's bugged me. If this guy is that or gal is that dedicated to saving this country, why would you blow your cover when you can continue to manipulate the White House to quote save the country? Wow! And you were you, you were a serving member of Congress for years and years. I mean, right. it's it's not like you know you're you're uh, part of the lunatic fringe. I, well, I go ahead, Bob. And, and, and I don't mind sharing for a real quick second. Um, Pages were, were huffing uh, chemicals at one point in time. Speaker Hastert's office wanted to keep it quiet. I set up with my press secretary a very elaborate way for me to be asked questions and my press secretary to be asked questions. And we initiated that all to be to be leaked. Wow. So you created a conspiracy yes, to create a leak. Yes, sir. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Bob Nay, former congressman from Ohio, author of Sideswiped, with our report from Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. It is always so informative talking with you. I've got just this amazing thing from the New York Times. The headline, Why Was Kavanaugh Obsessed with Vince Foster? Remember Vince Foster? Back in 1993, Vince Foster was a guy who worked in the White House. He was suffering from severe clinical depression, which was well documented by his doctors. And he went out and shot himself in the head, committed suicide. They found his body, and, you know, that was the end of that until the Alex Joneses of the right got a hold of it and said, oh, no, he was murdered by Hillary Clinton. We all know it. And somebody went to Ken Starr, who had investigated this in 1997. Now, this is four years later. In 1997, Ken Starr investigated the death of Vince Foster and concluded that it was a suicide. And somebody went to Ken Starr and said, why don't we get hair follicle samples from Vince Foster's daughter so we can find out what was really going on? Let's open a full-fledged investigation. We have reliable sources on this. Uh, reading from the article. But shortly after the Senate report, this is the Senate report saying, you know, Ken Starr killed himself. He was suffering from depression. Shortly after the Senate report was released, Mr. Kavanaugh convinced Mr. Starr to reopen what he called a full-fledged investigation of this foster matter, telling his colleagues his justification that, quote, this is, this is Brett Kavanaugh speaking, we have received allegations that Mr. Foster's death related to President and Mrs. Clinton's involvement, end quote, in Whitewater and other scandals. And who were those unnamed, presumably reliable sources that Brett Kavanaugh was quoting? Yeah, it was the Jerome Corsi's of the world. It was the right-wing crazies. This guy has been, you know, yesterday I said, and somebody called me up and said, how dare you say that Sonia Sotomayor was out as a Democrat. I said, you know, Brett Kavanaugh has been a right-wing hitman. He's been a Republican operative for years. He worked in the Bush White House. He helped uh, coordinate the lawsuit in 2000, Bush v. Gore, where George Bush claimed before the Supreme Court that he would suffer irreparable harm if the vote in Florida was recounted 
And in fact, we learned later he would have. He would have lost the White House because Al Gore actually won in Florida. Brett Kavanaugh was in on that. He was part of that. This guy's been a Republican hitman forever. Anyhow, let's pick up your calls. Paul in Woodenville. Hey, Paul, what's up? Well, Tom, you were talking about uh, a conspiracy with regard to this Brett Kavanaugh nomination. I think there's a conspiracy that goes back to uh, the death of Antonin Scalia. I'm not talking about his death, but the stonewalling of Merrick Garland. Yeah. If you look at this, what sense does that make? And look at the timing, February 2016. At that point, Mitch McConnell, everyone pretty well knew that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. So if you're looking at Merrick Garland as the nominee for the Supreme Court, unless you knew something, and I think Mitch McConnell and many in the Republican Party did know that there was collusion and interference by Russia, why wouldn't you just pick, at least give Merrick Garland a hearing and say, um, I'm sorry, there's too many reasons. And the reason they didn't say that is because there was no reason. They didn't give him a hearing because they had no good reason to say no. This is why Barack Obama picked Merrick Garland is because he went to Orrin Hatch, who is on the Senate committee here, and we've been hearing from him for a couple of days. He went to Orrin Hatch and said, give me the name of a republic of a of a judge who is acceptable to the Republicans, the non-controversial. He wanted to have. Why would you why would you at that time, if you're Mitch McConnell, say we're going to wait for the election, especially if you thought. Hillary Clinton was presumed to win, or worse yet, for their part of view, Bernie Sanders, who would nominate somebody much more liberal. Right. So you're thinking that Mitch McConnell knew that the fix was in. Yeah, he, he knew he had that, even odds to win the White House. And it's, so he was playing, yeah, he was playing the dice. He was playing the odds. And yeah. he knew there was even odds because he knew the fix was in. The, the fix being what, voter suppression? Sure playing this. this is a conspiracy. And, uh, and let me add something else to this. They see, you know, the Donald Trump, and this is a witch hunt, there's this, you know, there's kind of a phenomenon in social psychology that you tend to believe that other people are motivated the same way you are. Sure. So, of course, the Republicans think this is a witch hunt because that's the way they employ a special counsel, to do a witch hunt. But Robert Mueller, if there was nothing there by now, he'd say, I'm sorry, folks, there's nothing there. Fine. He's come up with not only guilty pleas, but indictments that have led to convictions, there's, there's something there. There's a there there, as they right. like to say in Washington, D.C. And the there right. there is, I think, there's a huge conspiracy here and that, to, for collusion. and. So the big, the big the question, Paul, then, is did Mitch McConnell know that the fix was in and the extent to which the fix was in? Keep in mind, in Wisconsin, I believe it was over 200,000 or 150,000 people were purged from the voting rolls just before the election. In Ohio, it was over 200,000. In Michigan, it was in the neighborhood of 200,000. In Pennsylvania, it was a couple hundred thousand. Did Mitch McConnell, and was that the fix that Mitch McConnell knew about? Or did it have to do with electronic voting machines? Or did it have to do with something else? I mean, you know, what exactly was the fix that was in that McConnell knew about? Or was it the Russian collusion? That's what I think Robert Mueller will be able to tell us. But he knew his back was against the wall. If if you were expecting to lose the election, why would you why would, why would, you, why would you burn that much political my, uh, capital? My partner, just right. a burden hand. A burden. Merrick Garden was a burden hand. You don't wait to see what Hillary who Hillary Clinton or possibly Bernie Sanders would nominate. Yeah, I agree with you, Paul. I agree. Thank you for the call. And the, and the and the question is, you know, why would he burn through that much political capital? Why would you? Why would Mitch McConnell uh, get a huge black eye for doing something that had never been done when Hillary Clinton would come along as president and nominate somebody even more progressive than Merrick Garland? Because Merrick Garland was not a progressive; he was not even a Democrat. He was a Republican. So, anyhow, good questions, all. Stephen, I don't have a city for you, Stephen. Where are you calling from? No, I'm actually traveling on the road, so I'm in Laredo, Texas, right now. Okay, what's on your mind? Uh, so I'm a conservative, and I've listened to your show many, many as far as, like, at least for the last three years, uh, I've listened to your show, and I've, I've actually seen, I've actually heard you be pretty reasonable. Okay, so I, I'm just surprised the amount of hysteria that's going around now. Um, I, I'm, I'm really surprised that you guys are taking this for what it is. Why don't you guys push to get the anonymous source revealed? I, oh, I actually am. I absolutely am. No, no, no. I, I almost guarantee you that it's not going to be, it's not going to be linked to Trump. This 
this this country has flipped its brain up upside down. Well, if it's not li- if it's not linked to Trump, Stephen, then we have a really serious problem. Obama did it to reporters. Oh, he put James Rison in jail. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So Trump hasn't done that. What I'm trying to get at is that people are not remembering what the things that happened in the past, and Trump's not even there yet. It yeah. Goes that way. Well, we'll we'll see. I mean, you know, if, if if Trump can find that any of this has to do with national security, then he has the basis to go after this person the same way that that uh, Obama did Rison, and that that I think is also a dangerous precedent. What a day! And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It actually does require all of us, as Bernie used to say, as President Obama used to say. Democracy is not a spectator sport. You have to get active. Make sure that your voter registration has not been purged by the Republicans. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 